Chapter Eight of Celebrated Crimes, Volume Five, Part Two, La Constantin by Alexandre Dumas. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Eight. With the reader's permission, we must now jump over an interval of rather more than a year, and bring upon the stage a person who, though only of secondary importance, can no longer be left behind the scenes. We have already said that the loves of Quennebert and Madame Rapelli were regarded with a jealous eye by a distant cousin of the lady's late husband. The love of this rejected suitor, whose name was Trumeau, was no more sincere than the notary's, nor were his motives more honorable. Although his personal appearance was not such as to lead him to expect that his path would be strewn with conquests, he considered that his charms at least equaled those of his defunct relative, and it may be said that in thus estimating them he did not lay himself open to the charge of overwhelming vanity. But, however persistently he preened himself before the widow, she vouchsafed him not one glance. Her heart was filled with the love of his rival, and it is no easy thing to tear a rooted passion out of a widow's heart when that widow's age is forty-six, and she is silly enough to believe that the admiration she feels is equaled by the admiration she inspires as the unfortunate Trumeau found to his cost. All his carefully prepared declarations of love, all his skillful insinuations against Quennebert, brought him nothing but scornful rebuffs. But Trumeau was nothing if not persevering, and he could not habituate himself to the idea of seeing the widow's fortune pass into another hand than his own. So that every baffled move only increased his determination to spoil his competitor's game. He was always on the watch for a chance to carry tales to the widow, and so absorbed did he become in this fruitless pursuit that he grew yellower and more dried up from day to day, and to his jauntest eye the man who was at first simply his rival became his mortal enemy and the object of his implacable hate, so that at length merely to get the better of him, to outwit him, would after so long continued an obstinate a struggle and so many defeats have seemed to him too mild a vengeance, too incomplete a victory. Quennebert was well aware of the zeal with which the indefatigable Trumeau sought to injure him, but he regarded the maneuvers of his rival with supreme unconcern, for he knew that he could at any time sweep away the network of cunning machinations, underhand insinuations, and malicious hints which was spread about him, by allowing the widow to confer on him the advantages she was so anxious to bestow. The goal, he knew, was within his reach, but the problem he had to solve was how to linger on the way thither, how to defer the triumphal moment, how to keep hope alive in the fair one's breast and yet delay its fruition. His affairs were in a bad way. Day by day, full possession of the fortune thus dangled before his eyes, and fragments of which came to him occasionally by way of loan, was becoming more and more indispensable, and tantalizing though it was, yet he dared not put out his hand to seize it. His creditors dunned him relentlessly. One final reprieve had been granted him, but that, at an end, if he could not meet their demands, it was all up with his career and reputation. One morning, in the beginning of February 1660, Trumeau called to see his cousin. He had not been there for nearly a month, and Quennebert and the widow had begun to think that, hopeless of success, he had retired from the contest. But far from that, his hatred had grown more intense than ever, and having come upon the traces of an event in the past life of his rival, which if proved would be the ruin of that rival's hopes, he set himself to gather evidence. He now made his appearance with beaming looks, which expressed a joy too great for words. He held in one hand a small scroll tied with a ribbon. 
he found the widow alone, sitting in a large easy chair before the fire. She was reading for the twentieth time a letter which Quennebert had written her the evening before. To judge by the happy and contented expression of the widow's face, it must have been couched in glowing terms. Trumeau guessed at once from whom the missive came, but the sight of it, instead of irritating him, called forth a smile. "'Ah, so it's you, cousin,' said the widow, folding the precious paper and slipping it into the bosom of her dress. "'How do you do? It's a long time since I saw you, uh, more than a fortnight, I think. Have you been ill?' "'So you remarked my absence. That is very flattering, my dear cousin.' You do not often spoil me by such attentions. No, I have not been ill, thank God, but I thought it better not to intrude upon you so often. A friendly call now and then, such as today's, is what you like, is it not? By the way, tell me about your handsome suitor, Maitre Quennebert. How is he getting along? You look very knowing, Trumeau. Have you heard of anything happening to him? No, and I should be exceedingly sorry to hear that anything unpleasant had happened to him. Now you are not saying what you think. You know you can't bear him. Well, uh, to speak the truth, I have no great reason to like him. If it were not for him, I should perhaps have been happy today. My love might have moved your heart. However, I have become resigned to my loss— and since your choice has fallen on him, and here he sighed, well, all I can say is, I hope you may never regret it. Many thanks for your good will, cousin. I am delighted to find you in such a benevolent mood. You must not be vexed because I could not give you the kind of love you wanted. The heart, you know, is not amenable to reason. There is only one thing I should like to ask. What is it? I mention it for your good more than for my own. If you want to be happy, don't let this handsome quill-driver get you entirely into his hands. You are saying to yourself that, because of my ill success with you, I am trying to injure him. But what if I could prove that he does not love you as much as he pretends? Come, come, control your naughty tongue. Are you going to begin backbiting again? You are playing a mean part, Trumeau. I have never hinted to Maitre Quennebert all the nasty little ways in which you have tried to put a spoke in his wheel, for if he knew, he would ask you to prove your words, and then you would look very foolish. Not at all, I swear to you. On the contrary, if I were to tell all I know in his presence, it is not I who would be disconcerted. No, I am weary of meeting with nothing from you but snub scorn and abuse. You think me a slanderer when I say, This gallant wooer of widows does not love you for yourself, but for your money-bags. He fools you by fine promises, but as to marrying you, never, never. May I ask you to repeat that? broke in Madame Rapoli. Oh, I know what I am saying. You will never be Madame Quennebert. Really? Really? Jealousy has eaten away whatever brains you used to possess, Trumeau. Since I saw you last, cousin, important changes have taken place. I was just going to send you today an invitation to my wedding. To your wedding? Yes, I am to be married tomorrow. To tomorrow? 
to Quennebert, stammered Trumeau. To Quennebert, repeated the widow in a tone of triumph. It's not possible, exclaimed Trumeau. It is so possible that you will see us united tomorrow, and for the future I must beg of you to regard Quennebert no longer as a rival, but as my husband, whom to offend will be to offend me. The tone in which these words were spoken no longer left room for doubt as to the truth of the news. Trumeau looked down for a few moments, as if reflecting deeply before definitely making up his mind. He twisted the little roll of papers between his fingers and seemed to be in doubt whether to open it and give it to Madame Rapelli or to read or not. In the end, however, he put it in his pocket, rose, and approaching his cousin said, "'I beg your pardon. This news completely changes my opinion. From the moment Maitre Quennebert becomes your husband, I shall not have a word to say against him. My suspicions were unjust, I confess it frankly, and I hope that in consideration of the motives which prompted me you will forget the warmth of my attacks. I shall make no protestations, but shall let the future show how sincere is my devotion to your interests." Madame Rapoli was too happy, too certain of being loved, not to pardon easily. With the self-complacency and factitious generosity of a woman who feels herself the object of two violent passions, she was so good as to feel pity for the lover who was left out in the cold, and offered him her hand. Trumeau kissed it with every outward mark of respect, while his lips curled unseen in a smite of mockery. The cousins parted, apparently the best of friends, and on the understanding that Trumeau would be present at the nuptial benediction, which was to be given in a church beyond the town hall, near the house in which the newly married couple were to live the house on the pont saint michel having lately been sold to great advantage on my word said trumeau as he went off it would have been a great mistake to have spoken i have got that wretch of a quennebert into my clutches at last and there is nobody but himself to blame he is taking the plunge of his own free will there is no need for me to shove him off the precipice the ceremony took place next day Quennebert conducted his interesting bride to the altar. She hung with ornaments like the shrine of a saint, and beaming all over with smiles, looked so ridiculous that the handsome bridegroom reddened to the roots of his hair with shame. Just as they entered the church, a coffin, on which lay a sword, and which was followed by a single mourner, who from his manners and dress seemed to belong to the class of nobles, was carried in by the same door. The wedding guests drew back to let the funeral pass on the living giving precedence to the dead. The solitary mourner glanced by chance at Quennebert and started as if the sight of him was painful. "'What an unlucky meeting!' murmured Madame Rapelli. "'It is sure to be a bad omen.' "'It's sure to be quite the exact opposite,' said Quennebert, smiling. The two ceremonies took place simultaneously in two adjoining chapels, the funeral dirges which fell on the widow's ear, full of sinister prediction, seemed to have quite another meaning for Quennebert, for his features lost their look of care. His wrinkles smoothed themselves out, till the guests, among whom was Trumeau, who did not suspect the secret of his relief from suspense, began to believe, despite their surprise, that he was really rejoicing at obtaining legal possession of the charming Madame Rapali. As for her... She fleeted the daylight hours by anticipating the joyful moment when she would have her husband all to herself. 
When night came, hardly had she entered the nuptial chamber than she uttered a piercing shriek. She had just found and read a paper left on the bed by Trumeau, who before leaving had contrived to glide into the room unseen. Its contents were of terrible import, so terrible that the new-made wife fell unconscious to the ground. Quennebert, who, without a smile, was absorbed in reflections on the happiness at last within his grasp, heard the noise from the next room, and rushing in, picked up his wife. Catching sight of the paper, he also uttered a cry of anger and astonishment, but in whatever circumstances he found himself, he was never long uncertain how to act. Placing Madame Quennebert, still unconscious, on the bed, he called her maid, and, having impressed on her that she was to take every care of her mistress, and above all to tell her from him, as soon as she came to herself, that there was no cause for alarm, he left the house at once. An hour later, in spite of the efforts of the servants, he forced his way into the presence of Commander de Jars. Holding out the fateful document to him, he said, "'Speak openly, Commander. Is it you who, in revenge for your long constraint, have done this? I can hardly think so, for after what has happened you know that I have nothing to fear any longer. Still—' knowing my secret and unable to do it in any other way have you perchance taken your revenge by an attempt to destroy my future happiness by sowing dissension and disunion between me and my wife the commander solemnly assured him that he had had no hand in bringing about the discovery then if it's not you it must be a worthless being called trumeau who with the unerring instinct of jealousy has run the truth to earth but he knows only half i have never been either so much in love or so stupid as to allow myself to be trapped i have given you my promise to be discreet and not to misuse my power and as long as was compatible with my own safety i have kept my word but now you must see that i am bound to defend myself and to do that i shall be obliged to summon you as a witness so leave Paris tonight and seek out some safe retreat where no one can find you, for tomorrow I shall speak. Of course, if I am quit for a woman's tears, if no more difficult task lies before me than to soothe a weeping wife, you can return immediately. But if, as is too probable, the blow has been struck by the hand of a rival furious at having been defeated, the matter will not so easily be cut short. The arm of the law will be invoked." and then I must get my head out of the noose which some fingers I know of are itching to draw tight. "'You are quite right, sir,' answered the commander. "'I fear that my influence at court is not strong enough to enable me to brave the matter out. Well, my success has cost me dear, but it has cured me forever of seeking out similar adventures. My preparations will not take long, and tomorrow's dawn will find me far from Paris.' Quennebert bowed and withdrew, returning home to console his Ariadne. End of chapter 8 Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia